Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey. Uh, our guest this week is a true badass. Um, uh, you'll hear from uh, Janelle McCauley coming up. Lieutenant Colonel Janelle McCauley coming up. Uh First, though, a piece of business, and then, and then I want to take a, a few uh, calls. Uh, the business is we've got a brand new course launching on the 10% Happier app, which is awesome. I, all of our courses are awesome, but this one's extra awesome. Uh, it's with our most popular teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who's my meditation teacher. We went up to his living room. He lives on um, in rural central Massachusetts on the, on the grounds of the, the – legendary insight meditation society and we went into his living room with some lucky users of the app and we did a course based around these phrases these catchphrases these nuggets of wisdom i call them wisdom bombs that he's developed or appropriated over the course of five decades of meditation practice um and meditation teaching and so we sort of uh drilled down on these various phrases that are incredibly useful they can reduce stress provide perspective and the first Part of what will be a multi multi part course goes up on the app uh, is already up on the app and it, it focuses on compassion uh, and and why it's good for you why it feels good to be uh, nice rather than unkind so that's the business uh, let's get to the calls we've got this thing this new feature on the on the podcast if you haven't been listening of late where we uh, we set up um, a phone number where anybody can call and leave voice messages at, for me and I'll answer them to the best of my ability you we don't play them for me in advance so I have no idea what uh, people are going to say and in a minute I'll give you the phone number if you want to call but let's take the first call Hi Dan I would like to know why loving kindness, sending people good vibes is not the same as positive affirmations I know it's come up on previous episodes how loving kindness isn't uh, affecting the brain in the same way that positive affirmations do and Therefore, they don't have a backfire effect, but I don't – I'm curious why. Thanks. Love the podcast. Appreciate it. That's a great question. I, You know, I feel a little hobbled in answering it in that I don't, don't know what you mean by positive affirmation. So I don't know um, exactly what you're referencing, and that may just be or almost certainly is ignorance on my part. But let me answer it based, uh, to the best of my ability, which is the power of positive thinking – is often uh, invoked uh, by people in the self-help industry. I think it is a word that I can't say, but it begins with B and ends with a T, um, like utter, unmitigated, irretrievable B ends with a T. Uh, the power of positive thinking is that you, essentially that you can affect the external world by controlling your thoughts. If you just think positively all the time, uh, everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns. That's just not true, and... Um, as I like to say, the only people who have had all their problems uh, solved uh, by this, uh, by the books that that um, you know propagate this myth, are the people who write these books because they make a lot of money writing these books. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that just thinking positively all the time is going to um, uh, change your world or the world generally. However, loving kindness meditation, in which you and 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 this is something we're talking about with Joseph in this recent course, in which you. Uh, sort of envision beings, you know, like uh, somebody you're close to, somebody you're not close to, 
all beings in the world, all uh, humans and animals, um, and systematically kind of send them good vibes by repeating these phrases in your mind, like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, et cetera, et cetera. This kind of meditation, which, believe me, I, I struck me as in- incredibly sappy and annoying, um, actually, uh, there is scientific evidence that it can have health benefits. It's, it, there's no evidence that it, it changes uh, the lives of the people to whom you're sending the, the good w- vibes. It, it, it changes your life because you are boosting the compassion muscle. You are boosting your ability to get out of your own head and uh, and to care about other people. And um, for a lot of us, that's a hard thing to do. And and that's why this is a useful training because over and over you are training yourself to 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 care and uh, about somebody who's not you. And in the end, that redounds to your benefit. Uh, next call. Hey, Dan. First off, I want to say I really appreciate everything you've been doing um, ever since you became so public about your own struggles. Um, this isn't really a question about solving a specific issue or how to be a little happier. It's more of a I need some advice from someone who's gone through something I'm going through. I'm a journalist, and I lost my job because I let my anxiety and my depression get the better of me. And I've kind of fallen off the face of the earth here, and I just need some advice on how, when everything seems to be piling on top of you, how you fight all that and garner the strength to overcome because it seems as though you have. And... uh, well, that inspires me. Any advice would be great. Thank you. Well, thank you for being so honest. Um, and I'm terribly sorry about what's happening. It sounds like a really difficult situation. It really does. Uh, look, I want to say before I give advice, I am not a mental health expert. and I'm not a meditation teacher. Um, I'm just a journalist who covers this stuff and practices it to the best of his limited abilities. Um, so th- that caveat having been issued, uh, if, if as you say, you've got depression and anxiety, my first move, if I were in your shoes, I think would be to deal with that because I think it's going to be hard to deal with everything else, including your career, if you don't take care of that. Um, so look, what do we know works for depression and anxiety? Um, talk therapy, medication, if it's recommended to you by your physician, um, uh, or your mental health, uh, care provider, um, exercise, um, having good relationships, getting enough sleep, eating well, and, um, meditation can be very useful. And so, you know, that we got to my view is that when it comes to well-being, you got to surround the ball, you got to pull I'm going to mix my metaphors here, but you got to pull every lever that's available to you. And, and those are the ones that, that we know work from, from the science. Um, so I would, if I were you, attack that with extreme prejudice. And then once you're starting to feel like you're on a little bit more stable ground, then I think going back at, at, uh, at your career. But the, the, the F. Scott Fitzgerald was a great writer, but he was totally wrong when he said there are no second acts in American lives. And I, I've seen in my own life and uh, just time and again, just by observing the world that we that people are given second chances. Um, and so uh, and I think everyone deserves them, sometimes third chances, fourth chances, depending on the circumstances. So I would say take a minute to take care of yourself and then get back in the ring. Um, but I'm sending you my best and I really appreciate the question. 
Um, if if any of you want to call in and leave a voicemail, we're going to be doing this, um, I think, in perpetuity, as long as we keep getting the uh, getting the great questions. Here's the number, 646-883-8326. 646-883-8326. Uh, the number's also in the show notes for this podcast, and I've put it out, and I'll continue to do so occasionally on social media. All right, so let's get to our guest. Uh, as I mentioned, she's really impressive. Her name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Janelle McCauley. Uh, she's uh, a lieutenant colonel in the United States Air Force. She works as the Director of Human Performance and Leadership for the 58th Special Operations Wing. She runs a, a pilot program to create high-performing, mindful, and mission-focused warfighters and families. That's from uh, her um, official bio. I'm not going to go too much more into her official bio, however, because she tells her story uh, in a much more compelling way than I could ever do. So let me let me shut up and, and let uh, let Janelle do the talking. Here she is, Janelle McCauley. So how did you come to meditation? I actually came to meditation out of necessity. I had this period in my life where, and I think many people can probably relate to this, where I felt as if I had to be perfect in everything that I did. Mm. I was a mom. I was a wife. Uh, I have two kids. Yeah. And so how we, old are they? They are five. I have a five-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter. Nice. So, yes, we all have kind of multifaceted lives. And so I, I was the mom. I was a leader in the military. I was the chief of the formal training unit for the KC-10 tanker aircraft. So I was leading about 75 people at the time. And my husband was deployed to the Middle East for a year. Both in the Air Force? Yes, we were both in the Air Force. So it's a tough, challenging life, but it's our life, and we've adapted to it. Our kids have adapted to it. We're all very resilient, I would like to think, and flexible because of it. But it's not without its sacrifices and its challenges. Where was he deployed? He was deployed to the Middle East. Middle East, okay. mm-hmm, For one year on a 365-day remote assignment, and that was really hard on this was us. Back in 2009, 2010. So Iraq's still going at this point. Yes. So he was not, I would imagine, maybe not the safest thing? Not the safest place, but he was, you know, on the military base. Okay. So he didn't have to go outside the base very often. Beyond the wire, as Mm -hmm. they say. But Mm -hmm. he, well, because the Air Force doesn't really do that unless you're in a plane. Exactly. And he wasn't flying planes. No, he is a maintenance officer. Okay. So he was commanding a unit of maintainers who were taking care of the planes gotcha. and getting them ready for okay. flight. Okay. Mm-hmm. But those places still get shelled. Places are still dangerous, and it was still a long time to be away you yep. know, from a family yes. perspective. Of and of at the same time, I had my own unit to lead. I had my one, I had one child at the time, a two-year-old, um, to take care of. And a house and a dog and Where all of that pressure. California, yeah. Northern California. So you just threw in a dog just to like up the I did. Degree I was of upping. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I was trying to emphasize. <laughs> right? Because we all have that, right? I mean, I even talk- I don't. I actually try to make my life as easy as possible. <laughs> try to like peel away some of those responsibilities. Well, in, in the military, you're also, we have to balance these two paths. Many of us are technical experts. So for me, that was as a pilot. I needed to be an expert in the field of aviation, and that's... So you're a pilot? I am a pilot. Okay. Yes. Yes. I guess you can't train pilots if you're not a pilot. Right, that exactly. A dumb question. So you you spent years piloting before you started training pilots. I did. That's so cool. I did. That's awesome. Yes, and I flew a few different aircraft. I flew Learjet. I love the idea, by the way, that you could uh, do some badass 
flight missions, come back and tell your husband, fix this thing. (laughs) We actually did have an interesting relationship, and it would work that way, although many of the times the conversation was, why did you break my plane? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because we'd bring it back and sometimes not the the best shape. In fact, my husband and I did do a a deployment together. And so I would fly into Iraq almost every day. On bombing missions? Um, no, I flew C-130s, so they're combat tactical airlifters. So my job was to transport troops and supplies in and out of the combat zone. Still, that's, that, is, it is. that is a combat mission. Yes, and this was 2005 oh, to 2007. Oh, super hot, yeah. So, that's that's yes. ins- high to the insurgency hot. Yes, yeah. We were a lot of – we did a lot of the resupply into Fallujah um, in that time frame. Okay, and, yeah. You know, it was one of those experiences that I'm grateful to have had um, because part of it makes me who I am today. But there were challenges and there was there were a lot of times that it really tests your ability as a leader. And I was an aircraft commander, so I led a crew of six people um, on on those missions. And there would be times that you're in, you know, thunderstorms and weather and engines are, you know, um, you're losing engines and shutting shutting them down and. And you just go into that mode of focus and having to get the mission and mission done. Think about the impact of this on your son, though. Next, sometime you know when your son's hanging out with a bunch of guys and somebody makes some stupid comment about the capacities of females, he can be like, "Let me tell you about my mother." <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I think that that's a that's going to give him a unique perspective, and sure. I hope like a diverse background for um, the way that he'll grow up and what he'll see in the future. Yeah. yeah. So I, as I am wont to do, completely derailed you from a, a logical, chronological um, uh, explanation of how you came to meditation. Yes. Let me see if I can put you back on the rails. Okay. You were trying to maintain a perfect life I with was. the dog, and I think we digressed from there. We digressed. We digressed. <laughs> yes. So I was. I was trying to do what I thought I was supposed to do. And in the military, we have, you know, servant leadership is foundational, and it's what we're taught to do and it's very important it means that you know you serve others before you serve yourself and that you wouldn't ask anyone that is under your command to do something you wouldn't do Mm -hmm. yourself and so i was really trying to embody that by being the best leader and the best pilot and the best mom the best spouse that i could be in that time in my in my life and i kind of forgot because true servant leadership, there's a place for self-love and self-care, right? You have to – and I use the analogy of an oxygen mask. We have to put on our own os- oxygen mask for ourselves before we serve and lead others. And during that time period, I lost that. And so what I first found before I found meditation was you know, I reached this burnout point where I was physically, emotionally exhausted And what I did was I found yoga and I had tried yoga about 10 years earlier in my career and I could not do it. My mind was too busy, too cluttered and I'm falling over. Yes. Yes. I didn't get it. I didn't understand this concept of slowing down. Would yoga at that time have been considered an okay thing to admit to your friends in the Air Force that you do? No. It was actually secret yoga. It was. It was kind of a secretive. I'm going to go off to the yoga studio and try this. But I really only tried it a couple times before I realized, nope, not for me. Can't do this. I'm a runner or I'm, you know, going to play a sport, but I'm not going to sit and breathe. Like that was something that was very foreign to me. Growing up, I had a real hard or 
a real important focus on hard work and kind of laboring and how the harder I would work, the more successful I could become. And that yoga stuff didn't have a place in that, right? It would just slowed me down from all the things I needed to get done. So that wasn't right. But in this moment, I knew I needed something. And so I, you know, and all things happen for a reason, right? Like a yoga class on base came, became available. And I was like, let me try this. And so for the last part of my husband's deployment, when I was really in a rough place, it became my solitude. It became the place where I didn't have to be anything but me, right? Because when I was outside of the yoga studio, I was mom and I was, you know, Major Macaulay at the time. And I was someone's boss and someone's leader and someone's instructor pilot and someone's, you know, a, a daughter, you know, to my parents that there was things that I had to deal with with them. So I always had a, a role. And when I was in the yoga studio, it was just me. And I could just have some solitude, have some quiet. And that became a gift and kind of set me on my path of healing. And right after that, I ended up going back to school for the Air Force. And so I spent two years at Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama studying. And I decided to choose to study performance under stress and to study wellness in a way that, you know, how can we put on our own oxygen masks? And so I wrote my dissertation. This is where I got my started my PhD work. And I focused on how the military can lead the nation out of the health crisis from a health and wellness perspective, right? If we developed the most effective warfighters from a health standpoint, from a performance standpoint, could we set a model for the nation to follow? And when I was doing that research, mental exercise, mindfulness in particular, just was speaking to me. I didn't go searching for it. You know, I was a yoga practitioner at the time, but it just rose to the top as the foundational piece for all of our wellness decisions. And so at what point did you try it? You know, almost everything I wrote about in my dissertation, I tried. So if I was going to write about acupuncture, I tried acupuncture. If I was, you know, writing about um, yoga nidra, you know, I rest, I tried I rest yoga nidra. And so with mindfulness, I actually started by getting to know Dr. Amishi Jha very well. Um, Previous guest on this podcast from the University of Miami, neuroscientist, great human. Yes, she is amazing. And she really helped me understand the science behind it, understand what her work and how important her research had has been to the effort. So I kind of learned from her. And then I, I just jumped in. I had done Shavasana. and Which is the, the corpse pose where you're lying on your back at the end of yoga, where most people actually either fall asleep or plan their shopping uh, after the after yes. yoga. But some people actually use it as meditation. Yes. And I always used it as clear my mind. What right? does that like, even mean, though? I know. Exactly. I didn't know what it meant. Yeah. I really just was like, I'm just going to sit in silence because I never sit in silence and just breathe. So well, I'm just going to I'm just going to embrace that. But I would I was going back and thinking about what I would do in those moments. I was trying to clear my mind, which I know now you can't really do and is not the right way to do it. But then that's where I think thought I needed to be. So it was a transition and a shift when I was learning about mindfulness because I was like, wait, I'm going to actually see my thoughts. I'm just not going to give them control over me. I'm going to just bring this awareness. So it was a completely different way of thinking about what I thought was meditation. And so I learned that 
really the research and the science led me to it. And then once I started using it in my life as a tool and a resource for what I would say was a tendency to be emotionally overreactive in my life, it just started to make sense. Not uncommon, by the way. <laughs> right? A lot of people, that's, and, and, I, and I think a lot of people. Turn on the television. Yes. A lot of people, I think, re- like the story resonates and I know part of your story as well came out of like a necessity to kind of do life better and yeah, figure out yeah. a way to accelerate your professional success without sacrificing yourself along yes, the way. Yeah, well said. And so that's kind of where so it was t- necessity t- and research. Tell me more about what did that look like? How were you meditating? How much? What form of meditation? And then and then I'll remind you if, if you forget really a little bit more about how it showed up in your life. So when I started – It had to be something that was a routine, something that I built into my schedule. So I would actually put it on my calendar. Gretchen Rubin, another former guest, she knows a lot. She has written a whole book called Better Than Before. I love giving Gretchen a little plug about habit formation. Yes. One of the things she talks about is if you want to form a habit, put it on your calendar if you're that type of person. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you are. I am. And in fact, I... When I first tried it, I did put it on my to-do list. And I am one of those people that gets very controlled by my to-do lists. I have a million of Me them. Too. And Oh, you have oh, yeah, multiple? So many. I have multiple to-do oh, lists. Oh, wow. That's It's hardcore. crazy. Although I did just recently read the book Getting Things Done. I don't know if you've read that book. No. But there's Who a – wrote it? Uh, oh, don't worry about his it. name right don't, now. Don't but you'll get, it'll come to you. Yeah, it'll come to me. He gives you this tip about having a notebook that you carry around with you all the time because part – of the reason we can't shut our brains off is that our brains don't want to forget something, yes, right? And we yes, tell ourselves, yes, don't yes. forget this. Mm-hmm. And then your brain, as soon as it starts to forget it, it brings it back up because it's like, she told me not to forget it. The CEO of the 10% Happier Company, the company that puts out the app, the 10% Happier mm-hmm. app, our CEO is a young guy in his 30s, Ben, who always carries a notebook. Yes. And he's just constantly writing stuff down. And he's super systematic about it. I mean, I can't read his handwriting. It's disgusting. But, but, when it gets in that notebook, it gets done. Yes. it's There's something powerful about transitioning it from your brain to know that it's in a safe place. Yeah. So then you can kind of release the thought and know right. it'll right. be there when I come back. Yes. So yeah. Yeah, that's really useful. So that's been something that I've – so that's how I get control of my to-do list, right, is with my little notebook. But I was always a to-do list person, so I would write – practice mindfulness <laughs> down in my notebook. And when I didn't do it at the end of the day, I would feel guilty. Yeah. And I knew this is not the purpose of mindfulness is not to add guilt and stress to my life. It's to help me, you know, deal with it and and manage it and perceive it in a different way. So I started putting it on my calendar. So even as a squadron commander, I led 400 people and the Air Force and my days were packed and they were busy. But I did my best to keep that appointment with myself. So how many minutes were you doing? About 15. It's pretty good. I mean, as a start, even as a final destination, 15 minutes a day, I believe is a really good habit. What practice were you doing? I anchor on the breath. So the first part of my mindfulness practice is usually just a present moment, right? I'm anchoring on the breath, feeling those sensations. And then what I like to do is I like to spend some of my mindfulness meditation in this self-reflective place. And I try to bring some gratitude in for it um, or into it. I might meditate and think about this loving kindness toward maybe something that I'm struggling with. Mm -hmm. Um, And most of the time, I'm going to admit one of the things I struggle with is forgiveness of, you know, my own forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it you know, it's sometimes if, called self-compassion. Right. Like maybe the day before 
I lost my temper with something or maybe I didn't do something as perfect as I wanted it to be. I did tell you I struggle with this <laughs> ability to or this desire to want to be perfect. I just learned to start forgiving myself for it and understanding that actually the imperfections were growth and learning. And so I kind of have drawn that into this self-reflective piece of, of my practice. So if you're doing 15 minutes, is like 10 minutes of anchoring on the breath. And then when you get distracted, you start again and then bring in some gratitude and stuff in the last couple of minutes. Is, is yes, that, you know? I'd probably, yeah, exactly. Probably about 10 to 5. It depends, right? If I got a lot of a lot of things on my mind, sometimes I, I really try to, to keep that present moment. And maybe I'll elongate that and cut short the self-reflection. I think of it, and this is the way I teach it in the military, it's mental push-ups. Right. It is my mental exercise. And so when I'm anchoring on the breath, I can see my push up. Right. Like I can see myself, my awareness moving to my thought and I acknowledge it. But then I bring it right back to that anchor point in that breath. And there's my push up. And so it's almost like the competitive side of me is like, all right, how many push ups am I going to do today? How long mm-hmm. can I hold my attention? Mm-hmm. And so I can kind of see my progress. And again, it's a practice, right? There's no destination. So some days I'm great at it. And other days my mind's wandering all over the place. Um, I think those are the days where you get better at it, actually. Yeah, exactly. A so-called bad sit is when it's like a tough workout. Mm -hmm. Because if you can hone in on the breath for just a nanosecond in the midst of a storm like that, well, that is training the mind to release the story, release the ego's story, and go back to whatever it is you're trying to focus on, your breath. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Exactly. I'm a genius. <laughs> I probably stole it from somebody. That's usually what I do. Right, right. And I don't know if you found this, because I've also found with my practice, and there are days, you know, I don't want to pretend that I'm perfect at this, because there are days that I don't do it, right? There's days that my calendar gets overwhelmed. And I try to fit it in later and I don't, right? My first rule is you got to do it and make it a part of your calendar, not a to-do on your to-do list. But the second rule is let it go, right? When you don't do it, you have to be able to immediately just forgive yourself and say, I'll try again tomorrow. This is like when you get distracted during meditation. Let it go, forgive yourself, start again. Yes, let it go. It's the same attitude that you can bring to the practice and the doing of the practice. Right. It's remarkably poetic in that way. It is. It's so powerful to just our psyche and our well-being and how we interact with other people. And I found, and I don't know if you found this at all, but I almost sometimes find even just in my day, daily life, I find moments to be mindful, right? So I may not get my 15-minute practice, but I find through the fluidity of my life and my, my daily activity, I find those spaces where in the past I might not have noticed the things that I'm noticing now. Yes, like we, before meditation, waiting for an elevator or waiting online to check out at a supermarket is a time to be impatient and pace or check your phone, hate on somebody in your mind or hate on somebody who's literally right in front of you going slower than you think they should. But actually, once you've got a little bit of this mental uh, push-up regimen under your uh, belt – these can be times to, instead of zoning out, zone in and just, you know, what is it like to be alive right now on planet Earth? Mm-hmm. Which is a remarkable thing to do, given the momentum of mindlessness in which we live. And also the, I notice now the pull of my technology a yeah, lot more. Yeah. And it's like your arm as a zombie, <laughs> with like just moving toward the phone. You don't know why. Right. It's almost like a 
just a, a reaction, right? I'm I'm bored, right? I'm sitting in a moment where I have nothing to do, and you immediately go to your of course, phone. Or lonely or tired or hungry or whatever it is. You go for the dopamine hit on your phone. So, But what else, in terms of your relationships as a mom, as a commander, as a wife, mm-hmm. how did meditation show up for you? The first time I really knew it was working, my son was small, and he was doing what all toddlers do. And so I'm sure people in the audience can relate to this. You put your child to bed, you kiss them goodnight, you close the door, and then they come right back out and they say, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, it's cold, it's hot. And I, those moments, because time is a valuable commodity, right? And so as a working parent, you're like, you have to go to bed at this hour because I've got these other things I have to do to prep for the next day, right? And then it's going to, and I'm, I'm a big Human performance is kind of my specialty and what I studied in my PhD. So sleep is very important to me. I know how much I need. I know what I need to get. And so every time your child would just be up and wouldn't go to bed and you want to fly off the handle because all that stress, right? I'd start feeling about or thinking about all the things I'm not going to be able to get done because now I'm dealing with this back and forth. I would want to kind of fly off the handle in those moments, right? And I noticed this mindfulness exercise and practice of mine was working when I could literally take a single deep breath and bring myself to the present moment and outside of my head that was judging me, that was, you know, telling me how imperfect I was being, that was telling me about all the things I had to do. And I could just be in that moment with him, get him calmly back to sleep. And most of the time, kids will feed off of us, right? So if we're getting anxious, they're going to get anxious, which is not going to solve the problem any faster. So I noticed that actually I could get him to bed much quicker. I could keep my wits and my calmness about me. And I was like, wow, this is what mindfulness can do. And it's the same thing that I've seen in an aircraft, Right. Like I've been in situations as a flight instructor where you have a student and they're trying to learn how to land or you're in the weather and you're trying to air refuel and you're five to 10 feet from another huge aircraft. So it's a very dangerous situation and the stress can be very high. And I was able to find myself just being able to take like a single deep breath and focusing in the moment and focusing my awareness and attention to get whatever job I needed to get done. That's awesome. How and when and with how much reluctance did you decide to introduce mindfulness into the curriculum in what I would imagine is a reasonably inhospitable environment (laughs) at the Air Force? Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier.
You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Are you hiring? Join the over 3 million businesses that use Indeed.com for hiring. You can post a job in minutes and manage your candidates from an easy-to-use dashboard. Post your next job on the world's number one job site, Indeed.com. Are you feeling limitless? I don't think I've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere, but I'll tell it now. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Are you a psychiatrist? (laughs) No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba. Ariana Huffington. Issa Rae. Barbara Corcoran. Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. How and when and with how much reluctance did you decide to introduce mindfulness into the curriculum in what I would imagine is a reasonably inhospitable environment (laughs) at the Air Force? Yes. So I actually had just finished my PhD, so kind of had this whole evolution of finding my own practice when I took command of my squadron. Where I started was with myself. I started by trying to be what I've now coined is like a mindful leader. I didn't know what that's what it was at the time, but I just started to exhibit, I guess, use the mindfulness and the skills I was learning to be an authentic leader, to be a present leader. I know over the course of my career, I could, there are so many times that you'd walk into your boss's office. You want to tell them something that's personal to you and you know that they're not listening to a word you're saying. Right. Their minds are wandering. And that always bothered me. And so I knew that when it was flipped and I was in charge and I was the commander, I was going to give them my attention. And so that's really where it started was by me being a mindful leader myself and also not being afraid to share the fact that, like I said, my background's in a whole host of human performance um, aspects. So whether it was nutrition, whether it was physical activity, whether it was mindfulness, I led by example. I was not afraid to say, yeah, I'm going to close my door and take some deep breaths because I need to, or um, I'm going to go to a yoga class at three o'clock on a Tuesday as the boss. And, you know, I'm actually going to teach that yoga class at three (laughs) o'clock. And so it was started by just this leading by example. I also thought it was really important to teach the airmen of my unit. So I did this right off the bat to teach them about their stress response. So it was kind of like, When you feel your clammy hands and your heart starts racing and the butterflies in your stomach and you feel like you want to just explode, I ask them to take a step back and go to the cloud is actually the kind of phrase I used. And what that meant was step back, take a couple deep breaths and then respond. So many people just aren't even aware of the amount of times our sympathetic nervous system, right, starts activating our amygdala takes control and makes the reaction for us many times we'll regret it later because it was something we didn't mean to do 
So I wanted to teach them how to do that or how to understand that mechanism of our physiology. And so that's kind of where I started. In fact, it became almost this buzzword around the squadron. You could hear Airmen saying, hey, dude, you need to go to the cloud. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, And it was my way to kind of introduce the power of our breath. And then from there, they actually started asking me, what do we do in the cloud, ma'am? What, what does this mean? And so I took that as my opportunity to introduce the idea of mindfulness. Now, in parallel with that, I also, in the way I was exhibiting, you know, this mindful leader characteristic and style, I would do things like call parents, write personal notes. Um, I had this policy called No Email Friday. So every Friday, I would put an out-of-office reply and I would spend the day connecting with the airmen I led, getting to know them, building relationships. Um, because when you're present and you're aware, that's that's what you do. You know, you aren't going so fast that you miss um, the people that are in your life. And I think that built trust within my unit. And so when I did introduce meditation to them and said, hey, I'd like to show you this technique of mindfulness, and we're going to start doing it at our commander's calls, at our leadership meetings, they went on the journey with me. Huh. They tr- because they trusted me, I think. And they said, well, let's see where she where she takes us. And it's gone beyond that now. Yes. So beyond that. So once, you know, over the course of the 18 months I was in command, um, I had uh, many airmen earn high accolades, awards for their performance. We had uh, the unit itself was awarded, you know, squadron of the year for all of Air Mobility Command. We were the airfield of the year for the entire Air Force. And it really wasn't because we focused on human performance. It was because that culture brought about, um, you know, an organization that was innovative and took risks and wasn't afraid to fail and had compassion. And so that's really why we earned those accolades. And then after kind of earning those accolades, it has now kind of been highlighted as to, gosh, what what did this unit do to make it um, have such success And so now I go around the Air Force and I kind of teach other commanders how to bring mindfulness not only into their lives to improve their own personal leadership and performance, but to change the culture of their organizations. How much resistance do you encounter? I would say, you know, there's always skeptics. And anytime you are leading change, right, people are going to be resistant to it. So there are definitely challenges associated with what I'm doing. Um, The interesting thing is I always lead with the science. And Dr. Jaw has this great study that talks about how they and actually was with General Pyatt when they studied the Marines. She's done a lot of it just to say she's done a lot of work with the military looking at the impact of this practice on members of the military. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of members of organizations of high stress that yes, have high stress. Firefighters, the mm-hmm. football team at the University of Miami and, and mm-hmm. others. Yeah. She's really focused on performance. Yes, exactly. Like how can you use mindfulness to achieve those to perform in high stress and rugged environments and still achieve high levels of performance, which is exactly the military. Right. That is what we do. And in fact, According to Forbes, right, they do the um, highest stress occupations every year. Enlisted military member is the number one for 2017. And it's been in the top 10 for like at least the 10 last 10 years. So we are a high stress population. And one of her studies shows that when we leave for a deployment in the pre-deployment interval, so the 
couple months leading up to our departure when we walk out the door, the stress is so high that our cognitive resourcing is decreased. Right, Our ability to pay attention is decreased. Our mind wandering is increased. Our well-being overall, right, how we feel, how, how we perceive the stress in our life is really high. And it's understandable, right? You're worried about your family. You're worried about your deployment. You're nervous about going away. But when I saw some of that data to say that our cognitive resourcing is low, when we walk out the door to go have to do a mission in a combat zone – That, to me, is really telling. I know when I deploy, I want to be at the top of my game. I don't want to be, you know, missing and and having degraded performance. With the mindfulness training, she was able to show that actually it protects our brains. So we can actually leave on a deployment despite the stress before we leave in the same, you know, cognitive resourcing state. And so I think that's a powerful statistic. I use it a lot to try to emphasize to the leaders in the military, you know, how important this skill set can be. And I use the analogy all the time that we will inoculate our military members with every possible vaccine, just in case when we're in a deployed environment, we come in contact with something. So very important. We do that. But we know that there's going to be stress. We know there's going to be emotional trauma that most of us will see in a deployed environment. And we don't do much to protect our brains. We do a lot on the backside, right? We have a lot of programs and a lot of things to deal with, post-traumatic stress and everything once we get home. But when we're leading up to it, it's something that the research proves can protect our brains. And so that's really one of the main arguments I'm using for bringing it into the forefront of what we do as a service. Do you think mindfulness is potentially a national security asset? Yes, Definitely. I think when you think about even children today, there's only about 25% of them that are eligible once they get to the age of 18 to join the military. I think that's one of the latest statistics. Why? Just because of whether it's a health issue, um, right, mental or physical, whether it's problems with um, crime, Mm -hmm. whether it's they're not graduating from school. There's a whole host of reasons that We don't have this eligible pool of young people to serve in the military. And I think a lot of it goes to this idea of how stress is valued in our environment and our culture and what it does to us from a whether it's preventive illness. Right. Kids are getting diabetes. um, And I know nutrition has a big play in that as well. I found in my dissertation, the reason why we make poor choices with respect to our healthy lifestyle behaviors, so what we eat, how much we stress, how much we sleep, it really comes down to the amygdala. When you're stressed, you make an emotional decision. That's the part of the brain that is associated with stress, one of the parts of the brain. Part of the primitive brain. And most of the time, I don't think we have the cognitive capacity to overcome the unhealthy default options that surround us, right? The candy bars, Mm -hmm. the Burger King. And so when you're stressed, you're going to make poor decisions with respect to your health. So what mindfulness can do for us and could do for America's youth all along the way is that emotional regulation, the ability to keep us more grounded and aware so we can make better decisions. And ultimately, a lot of those better decisions, if you start at a young age can lead to not only a bigger pot pool for us to pull from for military service, but I think, and I know Tim Ryan, Congressman Tim Ryan talks about this a lot, 
you know, a more mindful nation, right? People that are interact and build relationships better. Well, you're talking about it from a broad perspective, which mm-hmm. I yeah. share, but at, from a military perspective, protecting the brains of our airmen and women and servicemen and women generally, I would imagine will make us, I would imagine you would argue will make us safer. Definitely. Like when you hop on a plane, you don't just hope that your pilot has all their cognitive resourcing and is ready to do their mission. You expect it. And so with all of the military jobs we have, and there's a whole bunch from humanitarian to these combat environments to all the support functions, we are expected to perform at the best of our ability. And I think because of the way our brains operate, because of the stress we're under, and also um, technology, right? Sometimes I think we live more in this digital reality than we do in the actual reality that's around us. And so all of that kind of combines to not have people performing at their highest levels. And so I think this can help you know, military members really be the best that they can be when they're out there doing their jobs. And that could save lives. You think it's something we should be teaching in basic training? Yes. Uh, Yes. Yes. Do you think that will happen? I'm going to say I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, I'm extremely fortunate to be able to speak about this openly across the Air Force. And Many wing commanders, so it's like a base commander, um, ha- invite me to. In fact, I'm I'm here on the East Coast in New Jersey, giving three different briefings at the base on this type of topic. And you know, everyone I think has a desire to perform better. And I think, especially when I talk about, not only will you perform better, but you won't have to sacrifice yourself along the way. You know, you can find a a better way to harmonize your laboring and your hard work with all the joys that are in your life. And so I think people are responding to it. But you're right. There's still skeptics. What do you hear? What do people say to you? Um, I remember once I was at Camp Pendleton back in 2010, and I was taking a look at the study that was being done on Marines and meditation. And the press guy referred to it as men staring at goats, which was the name of a movie where, like, they tried to get paranormal powers into the military. So I've heard the skepticism from members of the military before. But what do you hear? So one of the critiques I got when I was leading a squadron in this manner, I, you know, people would say, well, you just make people feel good. And my first response was always, well, there's nothing wrong with making yeah. people feel good. That. Right. That, like, that's a that's a great thing. But I think they weren't tying what I was doing to performance. And the other thing, you know, when you're a leader, you give direction, right? That's that's what you do. You give military. We give orders. We we give direction to the people we lead. And I have this, you know, philosophy and with the organization I work now with is called the Profession of Arms Center of Excellence. And we educate, inspire airmen across the Air Force and leadership and professionalism. But we like to say you have to have connection before you give direction, And so if you don't start by learning how to be present, by learning how to be aware of who you're leading, right, you're not going to get as far with your direction. I mean, we can use our rank and say, I outrank you, I'm the boss, do what I say. And there is some semblance of a hierarchical structure in the military, but we can get so much further and create better organizations when we start with the connection piece. So I really, truly believe that's kind of what that's what mindfulness does for us. The other kind of critique, I guess I would say, is people say, I don't have time for that. I don't know if you've gotten that before. I don't have time. The biggest obstacle. The biggest obstacle. Yes. What do you say? So normally what I say is I ask them, 
Well, when you do a task at your computer, so and we have performance reports. So if you're sending, sitting there sp- spending time at your computer working on your performance report and your little email dings, right? And so it's in your little right corner. Every time that email dings, it distracts you, right? And so now you're thinking about that email. Oh, I wonder what that was about. I wonder if I should respond or maybe even open it. And people think they can multitask, right? From a brain standpoint, you know, you can't do that. You can't switch efficiently, right, without degrading some of your productivity. So what I tell people is, first of all, turn off those distractions when you want to focus on a task. The other thing I always tell them is think about how much you mind wander, right? We've all read a page in a book, got to the bottom and said, I don't even remember what I read. Drove your car someplace. I don't even remember how I got here. That's all mind-wandering and unintentional mental time travel. So when I tell them that the science will tell us 50% of our waking moments, we do that. We mind-wander. So they say, well, it takes me two hours to get through a performance report. Well, half of that is (laughs) mind-wandering. Half of that is because you've left your email open and you're distracted. So I help them design better ways to not get distracted using mindfulness as well to keep their attention longer. I like that. To build more white space in their yeah, day. Yeah. So now you have time, yes, right? Right. Do this and you will have more time. Yes. Yeah, instead of less time. I really like that. You've been such a great guest. Are there is there something I should have asked, areas that we should have explored that I haven't given you a chance to do? You know, the only thing I will say is that the need for this really hit me one night when I was giving my son a bath. You know, I was doing what I always do. I was trying to multitask, right? Bathing and and thinking and running through my to-do list. And all of a sudden, my son looked up at me and he said, he grabbed my face in his little hands and he said, mommy, why are you so sad? Mm. And I love you, mommy. And it just kind of crushed me there for that minute because I was thinking, but I, but I'm here. Right. I'm, I'm physically present with him. What, what is he talking about? And then it dawned on me that I was mind wandering. And the majority of the time we mind wander, the research will tell us that we mind wander about unpleasant thoughts. I was mind wandering and distracted instead of in the moment with him, laughing and loving and seeing all the joys that we have in life. And it was then that I realized and started kind of this new focus on what I call the four L's, labor, laugh, learn, love. So every day I try to focus on harmonizing, not balancing, because that's an unrealistic expectation, but harmonizing my laboring, my laughing, my loving and learning. And even at the end of the day, I sit with my kids and we take two deep breaths together before we go to bed. And I ask, did you labor today? Did you work hard? And did you love? You know, and if we didn't, we all give hugs. Did you laugh? And if they didn't, the tickle monster comes out. (laughs) Did you learn something? And I was missing a lot of my life and all the good parts of my life. And sometimes we even do this thing where we plan out the good parts in our life and we say, oh, well, I'm going to laugh and I'm going to love when I go on vacation in three months. And you just focus on looking forward to that vacation when in reality, you should be looking for those things in your everyday life. We just never stop playing with our phones or listening to the judgments in our head long enough to witness the great things that are going on right in front of us. Very well stated. If people want to learn more about you from you, how do they do so? So I have a website, JanelleMcCauley.com, where they can learn more about me or contact me uh, through that, through the website. I also have a TED Talk 
Okay. Search my name. TEDx ABQ was the um, event that I spoke at. Albuquerque. I also post a lot on LinkedIn on human performance areas so people can follow me in that social media aspect as well. Awesome. I salute you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful to get to meet you and to share some of my experience. Likewise, it's valuable. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.